Now we'll take some time together to open up God's word. If you have a Bible, you can open with me to the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 32. I'm going to begin by reading the first eight verses, though God willingly we will consider the entirety of this chapter. Let's see how we go. Listen as I read from God's word, 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 1 to 8. After these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah, encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city, and they helped him. And a great many people were gathered, and they stopped all the springs and the brooks that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the king of Assyria come and find much water? He set to the work resolutely, and he built up the wall that was broken down, and he raised towers upon it. And outside he built another wall, and he strengthened the Milo that is in the city of David. He also made weapons and shields in abundance, and he set combat commanders over the people and gathered them together in, to him in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there is more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Let's pray. Our great Lord God, as we take this time in our gathering to open your word, it is with a desire God, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us. God, that you would encourage and comfort, that you would convict and correct, that indeed your word would speak and have its way within us. God, we pray that you would cause this time to be very, very fruitful. Grant, O oh God, that I would speak clearly and faithfully. Enable, O oh Lord, everyone who's gathered here um, to have the grace to give themselves attentively to the hearing of your word and I pray that you would open their hearts and minds and that you would use all that we consider today for your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. As we come to this section of the scriptures in 2nd Chronicles chapter 32 there has been a lot that has gone on in the history of Israel. After having had David and Solomon as kings, then the, the kingdom was subsequently fractured and divided between Judah and Israel. Among those two groups, then you had a, a succession of king after king after king. Some few did what was good in the eyes of the Lord. Many did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, in all of those things, God was faithful. 
because God had told these people, his children of Israel, that if they obey the terms of his covenant, he would protect them and he would bless them and he would keep them and he would prosper them. That was where the terms of the old covenant. But if they were disobedient and they went in the way of the rest of the world, the other nations following the wicked desires of their own hearts, then they would have problems. Other nations would defeat them, would take them captive. There would be plagues and there would be famines and there would be all kinds of problems. Now, whenever I consider that logically, it seems like a pretty easy decision, doesn't it? Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. What do I want? I mean, it seems like a pretty easy decision, doesn't it? But that said, however easy the decision may seem, the condition of the heart drives a man a different way than would seem most wise and logical. And they continually disobeyed and walked away from God and incurred His wrath. As we come towards this section of Scripture... We have the divided kingdoms. Hezekiah is the king at this time in Judah. Israel at this time is already in exile under the control of other nations. And there had been such seasons of wickedness on the outer lying portions of Judah. There are attacks presently going on where King Sennacherib, Sennacherib, However you like to pronounce it makes no difference to me. Every country I go to, they say it differently. The king of Assyria. How about that? The king of Assyria was already attacking outlying areas such as Lachish and destroying these things. And he was making his way towards Jerusalem. He had a clear intention, the scripture tells us, what is his intention. It says at the end of verse 1, he was coming there thinking to win them for himself. Now, before he himself personally has arrived, he's already sent uh, groups before him that are beginning to set up the siege works. Hmm. We battle in different ways today, so let's just consider that for a moment. One of the ways you would attack a city such as Jerusalem that is uh, covered and protected by walls is you cut them off. They can't come outside of the city uh, to harvest from any of their fields in the surrounding area. They can't receive goods and services being brought in. If they don't have an internal water source, you could even cut off their water supply. And so in the process of time, without much loss to to your soldiers or battle, you would just wear them out to where they raise the white flag figuratively. They didn't necessarily use white flags yet for surrender. And they would come in and take them bloodlessly. So they they were beginning to coming to lay siege against Jerusalem what's what's interesting to note here is I love the way that it begins it says after these things and these acts of faithfulness that's a nice thing to hear isn't it don't get to hear that a lot when you're reading through these sections of scripture if I was to go back to the 
previous chapter and the closing verses, it would say like this. Thus Hezekiah, as in verse 20 of chapter 31, did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every work that he undertook in the service of the Lord or in the service of the house of God, and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. That sounds really nice, doesn't it? If we were to even jump across, and I will, you might note it if you want to read it later, to uh, the parallel account of this that is in Second Kings chapter 18, uh, it tells us this in chapter 18 and 19, but describing Hezekiah, it says this, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all of the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. So you go forward and backwards, and his level of trust in God exceeded all the kings in both directions. And it says, uh, for he held fast to the Lord and did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord had commanded through Moses. So, just, just by way of, of simple introduction, as we jump into chapter 32, we have a faithful king. A really, by human standards, faithful king. This work that God had done in his heart to turn him away from the ways of his father, to really in the preceding chapters encourage the entire nation to return in repentance, to restore the temple, to renew their worship and covenant. It, it, it seems like a glorious time. And so the tendency might be to think this, as a man of God, who's doing all that God has called him to do, with a level of faithfulness that exceeds kings in all other directions, he probably won't face any problems. He probably won't have any difficulties. He won't have any wars or rumors of wars or any, because he's good, and so he won't have any trouble. Wrong. And what, what happens here is in spite of all of that, remember, the children of Israel and many still in the outlying ca uh, uh, regions within Judah, their hearts are not wholly turned to God. God is still working his work for the purposes of, of apostate Israel. And here is a faithful man. And this is what I want us to, the first point I want you to be aware of is this. The faithful still face the fires. Okay, And we know that is true even as we come to the days of the New Testament. For us believers today in this world, you will have tribulation. It's a guarantee. But be of good cheer or take heart. I have overcome the world. But the, the fact is, in this world you will encounter various trials and various tribulations. These are not accidental they're not, they're not mistakes, they're not errors, they're not confusions, they're not oversights by God in any way. 
even the faithful will still face the fire. Listen to what the, the scriptures tell us in Isaiah as it's prophesying. In Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 and 2, it says this, But now, thus says the Lord. Now anything that's preceded with those words, thus says the Lord, how reliable is what follows? Yeah, you can't get more solid than that. You can't get more sure than that. No word of any man rests with the, the sincerity, the surety, and power as the word of God. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Oh, let me, it says this. Thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. Now we're aware of that, that it's, it's become songs. It speaks of their special identity and relationship with him. And then what's the next part of that verse? Verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Now what I want to just note here is simply this. There's no necessarily avoiding the walking through the waters, through the rivers, or through the fire. Even for the faithful chosen ones, they would still have to go through the fire. But the beauty of it is, even when you're there in the fire, He is with you and His protective care is there. And so, so you don't need to look at the fire and get overwhelmed by the fire and caught up in the fire and all that. You look to him because he's with you. He's your strength. He's your support. He's your hope. The faithful still face the fires. It's, uh, we all memorize and or hear people recite the Lord's, uh, or the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23, right? Yeah, he leads us beside the still waters. And, we, and that section is very blessed and comforting and true. But in the variety of experiences in our lives, we're not always beside the still water or in the pleasant pasture. As it, as it also says in verse 4 of Psalm 23, Yea, though I, even though I walk through the valley of death, which actually more literally there is the valley of darkness. Misery and darkness that might lead to death. What does he say? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So it's important to know that very clearly. For the faithful believer... They cannot think the moment they see a problem in their life, I must have some grievous sin that God is pouring out His wrath on me for it. All right? Nor should you, when you find one of your brothers or sisters in the Lord, that they're facing difficulty, cast that same judgment on them. I wonder what secret sins. No, that is, those things are ultimately only known to God. Now, could there be value in a, in, in a little bit of evaluation? How have I been walking? What's been going on? Where's my heart? Is it maybe that these problems are serving as a rod or staff to redirect 
me in the way I ought to go. So I'm not saying you throw, out, throw it out altogether. God still does use circumstances to discipline and correct his people. But just because problems and trials are afoot does not mean you took a misstep. Make sense? So it's important to be aware the faithful still face fires. I love the fact that this this problem season of of difficulty is introduced by declaring his remarkable faithfulness and deeds. And into those faithfulness and deeds comes these problems. But God is with him. The second thing I want us to note as we go through here, you can see uh, verse 2 says, Hezekiah saw that the king of Assyria had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem. He planned with his officers that he might stop the water in the springs outside and they helped him. Many people helped. They stopped the spring so that they wouldn't get water. Verse 8, he set resolutely to build up the walls and break down the towers. This is to say this, the faithful still must work wisely. What, what could be the tendency? Well, it doesn't matter if this king comes. I'm faithful. We're good. We'll be safe. We'll be protected. We don't have to do anything but sit back. Well, I like the fact that it's not that he's doubting or denying God, but he is taking wise precautions and wise effort, the things that would need to be done. He is taking responsible uh, activity upon his shoulders. Let's cut off the water so that they will have a problem laying siege to us. So what they're trying to do to us, they'll face it a little bit themselves because we know the lay of the land. We know the limitation of water in the, in the outlying vicinity. Let's hurt them. And then he goes on and he establishes soldiers, officers, commanders, organizes the people, rebuilds the wall, builds a, repairs and rebuilds the wall, builds a second wall, and even repairs the Milo, of which most of us are saying, what is that? It's confusing because we generally don't have one lying around. Uh, that is a phrase that refers to a, a specific section within Jerusalem that was always in need of buttressing and repair. Because it was a section of the wall that was on a very, very steep grade and abutting, abutting up to mountains. And so in that section, whenever there'd be rains, whenever there would be storms, the, the effect of the natural elements on that section of the wall and, and some housing habitations just inside that wall, which were called the Milo, uh, they faced being run down and demolished much more quickly and so you would often so he was getting everything as clean as organized as fortified as built up as possible planning organizing he wasn't simply presuming upon God he was actually even considering God may be pleased to use the labors of our hands instead of I'm not laboring God will do it for me that's a little presumptuous, if not, if, if little isn't an understatement. It, it, and so here they step up, 
And they do all of these basic work. The faithful still face the fire. The faithful still work wisely. But I want you also to know this. The faithful still totally trust in God. Which what, I, I'm, what I'm drawing your attention to is this. Though they are stopping the springs, building the walls, organizing the battalions, he's not thinking, we will win because of the walls, because of the battalions, because we cut off their water supply. He understands that though he is working wisely to do all that he can do, he ultimately is trusting totally that everything is in God's hands. And that's, I love the way that he uh, unfolds this here really in verse 7 and 8 as he speaks encouragingly to the people. He says, be strong and courageous. Such familiar words in times where you're facing overwhelming odds. Many of us, our minds will go back to Joshua as they're getting ready to enter into the promised land. And how many times God said to and, jo- and the people said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Until eventually he got to the place where he was turning back to the people and telling them, be strong and courageous. Now the source of strength isn't dig deep within yourself. Right? That's not where you're going to find the strength to, to, to face this onslaught. But it says this, Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. See, what's, what's beautiful again about this is uh, Hezekiah is not involved in false manipulative propaganda. He's not pretending as if, yeah, they're not too many. We might be able to take them. He's, he's not playing that game. He recognizes, no, it, it, it's a great horde. You know, numerically, yeah, we are absolutely, it's over. Uh, he, so as he's encouraging them, he's not trying to encourage them with a false sense of hope. They're not as good as we think they are. They're not this and that. They're not as numerous as we might fear. No, none of that that stuff that might be marshaled to make people feel better is being put up there, is it? He's, he's acknowledging the reality of the circumstance. It's a great horde. <laughs> you know, it is a great horde. I mean, that's just a word for an absolutely massive, innumerable crowd. We don't use that word a lot. But then what does it say? With him is an arm of flesh. Everyone who's coming with him, they're all men. And men have their limitations. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And listen to what it says. And the people took confidence. So he says, look, you don't need to fix your eyes so much on that great horde. Because with us is God. You look at them, what's the natural response? Fear and dismay. You look to the Lord. And then you look at them. And, you, and what's your new response? Ain't nothing. Ain't no big deal. 
It's a, it's a massive horde of people that we can't handle, but God can, and, and, and he doesn't even know at this point exactly what the purpose is. Is God going to help us? Grant us strength so that one man puts to flight a thousand? Or is God just going to fight the battle for us? And we're just kind of watching over the walls thinking, wow. Doesn't know, but his trust is in God. That, that whether God is going to use them instrumentally or whether God is simply going to do it himself, they don't know, but he knows this. His confidence is in God. His total trust is in him. Now for a brief moment, after three thoughts on the faithful, we take one moment for just one of our points today and look at the faithless. I might call them the foolish as well. The faithless stubbornly deny the God they don't know. Now into this uh, circumstance comes this king of Assyria and, he, and we see his, his denials of God is because he does not even understand who God is and that he exists. He begins by denying God's, his deliverance. We, we can see that in verse 11. The, the king came who had been besieging Lachish with all of his forces and his servants to Jerusalem. So now they've made their way onward. They're setting up now uh, uh, completely with the whole horde and forces at Jerusalem and to Hezekiah and to all the people of Judah who are in Jerusalem saying thus, verse 10. The, the, the king of Assyria says, on what are you trusting that you would endure the siege of Jerusalem. In other words, in his mind, logically speaking, their only hope would be if somebody comes and helps them. But he's the king of Assyria. And at this point, there are no other nations who are going to pose a problem for him. So who are you hoping? There's no one. Israel can't come. We've already got them. Egypt's not going to come. No one's going to come. So on who are you hoping? Since no one can come from outside, are, are you hoping for your God to help you? Are you kidding? This is, the, this is the tone and sense, I'm paraphrasing, mind you, of what he's saying here. He, he's denying God's deliverance. He says these words at the end of verse 11, don't, uh, saying, um, Hezekiah is misleading you, he says in verse 11 that he may give you over to die by famine and thirst when he tells you. So he's mocking the things that Hezekiah tells them and saying these are, these are not true, not possible. He says he's misleading you when he says the Lord our God will deliver us. This man is convinced God cannot deliver them. In, in the scriptures, the, the, the term that's used for deliverance is the same term that's so often used for salvation, to deliver us from our sin. And, and sometimes the reality in the world in which we live, sometimes people even feel that way. The life that they've lived, the, the experiences they've had, the, the sin that's wrapped itself around their daily activity, they, 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 start, they would even possibly think... There's no one that can deliver me. There's, there's just no one who can save me. Not even God. I remember um, when we were building a wall around our campus in India. 
we were interacting with some of the local villagers who had been uh, obstinate, to say the least. They've been not letting us build our wall. They've been demanding money and bribes and commissions and all kinds of problems were there, you know. And uh, our project manager came to me and he said, you know, you may just have to give them what they're asking for because even the almighty God cannot change these people. I said, uh, did, did you just hear your words? You said almighty and then you said cannot. I mean, almighty and cannot don't go together. Agreed? And I was so glad he said that. Because how dare he challenge God. So even as, as we had been praying for God to change their hearts and works that work, uh, uh, open the way for us before, we were able to say, Lord, and do it in such a way where this man can see there's nothing thing that you cannot do yeah and that week they stopped challenging us and we started building the wall this how dare someone say god cannot deliver what whatever the depth of sin whatever the struggle of life whatever the misery that has entrapped a man the grace of god is able to take one who is dead in his trespasses and sin has nothing in himself, no strength in himself, and find grace, life, and deliverance in Christ Jesus. It is a remarkable thing. Such a foundational, basic reality. And God, in order that we would understand that time, this reality spiritually would show, you know, these things that are also just as seemingly impossible. Deliverance from this overwhelming horde. I can do it. And in this occasion, you know what he's going to say? I can do it without your help. I can deliver you without your help. I'll do it all. What? Can God do that? Yes. He's going to mock God's deliverance. He's going to mock God's desires. For example, look in verse 12. Oh, the ignorance of this man so wise in his own eyes. Verse 12 says this. Has not the same Hezekiah taken away the high places and the altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem to come before one altar and worship? In other words, in his foolish mind, you guys used to be so spiritual. You had so many altars, you had all these things going on, and now your king has just locked it down to just one God and just one place. How horrible. Not realizing that all of those things were actually good. All of those things actually were pleasing and desired by God. He has no idea of the deliverance of God. He has no idea of the desires of God. He thinks that God wants, like men would think, the more shrines, the more altars, the more priests, the better. Well, what men think is right is often, if not always, different than what is right in the eyes and will of God. And that's why we're so thankful to have his word, lest we be lost in our own confusion. He, he, he's confused about his deliverance. He's confused about God's desires, his will, his ways, and his word. He's confused about God's decrees. What do I mean by that? 
When we speak about the decrees of God, it simply means this. Nothing happens apart from the will of God. God either does it or permits it, but nothing happens that was outside of his power and permission. Nothing simply happens. Whereas the king is going to come in here and say, I have and my father have had so many victories, so many battles, so much success. And he's actually thinking they had all of that success because of themselves and their power. Not realizing that even their previous prosperity was the providence of God. He doesn't know it. Thinks he did it for himself. Thinks he achieved it for him. He doesn't understand that all that he achieved was only what God purposed and permitted for his own purposes he thinks his victories for example his fathers and his victories against israel was somehow defeating this same god where it was this god who was actually bringing them to punish his people they didn't follow and he doesn't understand that doesn't understand the mystery of his decrees in the sovereign god it doesn't understand god this his distinction that he is not like. He's constantly in here as he's going through now saying, look, we went there. Were their gods able to deliver them? No. We went there. Were their gods able to deliver them? No. In all the lands that we've gone, none of their gods were able to deliver them. What makes your God any different? It's a good question. It's not, and it's actually not what makes our God difference? It's what's the difference? Uh, our God is real. He's true. It's, it's not imaginary. It's not a story. It's not, not the basis of a religion. It's not one, one type of spirituality. There is a true and living God. I love the way that uh, the simplicity of the words in Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 10 says these words, but the Lord... Yahweh, the God of the scripture, is the true God. He is the living God and everlasting king. I mean, this is, it's not like the, here's the difference. Their God was a carving of wood. Their God was a sculpture of stone. I mean, how effective is that? You know, put me in a race with any of them. I'll outrun a piece of wood or a stone in a heartbeat because it can't do anything. Let's have a, a, a memory contest. Let's play games. I'll beat a piece of wood and a stone hopefully every time. But they, they, they were nothing. And here this guy is thinking he and his people, maybe following their God, somehow did all of these things and thinking the God of Israel is no more than them. Frighteningly, he actually comes in here and will say something like this, indicating that not only does he think that the God of Israel is no different, but because there's fewer shrines, because there's much more limited expression of it, Look what he'll dare to say down in verse 15. 
Don't let him mislead you. Do not believe it in this fashion. Do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. Listen, how much less? <laughs> in other words, he's, he's thinking in the, in the comparison of the nations and their gods that we faced, yours is kind of down here compared to them. Well, maybe in terms of the expressions, uh, uh, the number of priests, the gaudiness of their uh, practices. I don't know all the details, but he, he, he esteems it low. How much less your God? What a provocation will he be able to deliver you? Now, further than that, he doesn't understand his deliverance, doesn't understand his desires, doesn't understand his decrees, doesn't understand his distinction. He doesn't understand his delays. God hasn't yet helped them. <laughs> As they've made their way towards Jerusalem, victory, victory, <laughs> victory. And so he, this fellow's thinking, because God hasn't yet acted, he can't or won't. Yeah, we, we don't always understand the, the patience of God, the mercy of God, the timing of God. We simply don't. But just because we don't understand it, we best not deny it. And he didn't understand it, and so he, he denied it. And uh, he denied the devastations that God could somehow accomplish this and, and bring them to ruin. But look what it says in verse 20 and 21. Then King Hezekiah, uh, then Hezekiah the king of uh, and Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because and this cry to heaven, and the Lord sent an angel. Now, if, if you were to back up, it, it's quite interesting. Not only did he say these words, right? He, he was so committed to this and thinking that I, if I can just demoralize the people, I will win. He sends letters. What's interesting also to me in a more uncomfortable way is that the king of Assyria seems to almost know word for word the things that Hezekiah is saying. Seems that there's somebody in the midst who might be spilling the inside information. But, that's, you know, so there might be a mole in the midst. Regardless of that, you have uh, sending letters. You even have them learning to say mocking phrases in the language the Hebrew language of, of Jerusalem. Remember, this is prior to the Babylonian captivity, so Hebrew is still the language, not Aramaic. So they're learning phrases specifically designed to stand at the walls and mock the God of the people inside. I mean, the atten in intentional attack, when you read it for yourself in, those, in that section, you'll be amazed at the patience and mercy of God. But they cried to the God of heaven, verse 21, and the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. If you jump over to 1 Kings, you realize that it came to the point where delays were done. And God said, you want to see what I can do? You want to see deliverance? You want to see devastation? You want to see my hand? Here I come. In that one swoop, the angel came 185 
thousand commanders and soldiers. Whoom. They wake up, it says they wake up in the camp and it was filled with dead bodies. So that those who weren't dead got up and ran away. Including the king of Assyria, you know. In all of his pride and pomp, he now realizes, oh no. And he turns and runs and what does it say? He returns to his own, he returned with shame of face to his own land. He thought he could defame and shame the God of the universe. <laughs> Learned a very, very hard lesson. Then it goes on to tell the misery of what happened to him. He goes into the house of his false God and his own sons come in and kill him, which happens to be exactly what Isaiah prophesied would happen to him if you do go back to Isaiah and 1 Kings. So, Wow. Jump with me, if you would, back to the faithful in verse 24 and following. And this is, a, this is the, it, everything's been so positive so far for the people of Israel and for, and for uh, that nation and for the display of God's glory and delivering power. And then we come to verse 24 and following and we find that the faithful still foolishly fail I don't know if you're like me I would have loved if after God saved me I never blew it again I never did wrong again I never misspoke you know, I had absolute control over over my anger over my desires everything perfect it's not for anybody. If anyone says that he does not have sin, it tells us in 1 John chapter 1, he makes God a liar and the truth is not in him. It doesn't happen. Everyone still sins. And so here is a king before and after. No one was as faithful as him. But look what it says in verse 24. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. He prayed to the Lord and he answered him and gave him a sign. Now all of that is, is again in, in Kings and you can see those kind of things, sick to the point of death and, and the, the prophet comes and says, look, in three days, your sickness is done. You're gonna be able to get up and go into the house of the Lord. It's finished. Now I'm confused by the fact that once the prophet tells him in three days, you're gonna be all better. He says, well, what sign are you gonna give me right now? Wait three days, man. That's what I'm thinking. What is the problem with you? Uh, but he demanded a sign and God gave a sign. Remember the, the shadow on the steps and the steps, went, the, it, the shadow went backwards on the step. God caused the sun to move in reverse direction in order to testify to his power over everything, including the little sickness of this fella. And uh, when all that happened, other people and other nations also, especially those who often watch the stars and the sun, what happened? This day was way longer than it was supposed to be. And the sun went the wrong direction. 
They heard why that it had been a sign that God had given to Hezekiah and an envoy, an emissary, a diplomat from Babylon came down to the area, came down to the place. As God had healed him and he did recover in three days, the scripture tells us here, verse 25, but Hezekiah did not make return to return according to the benefit done him because his heart was proud. Why would his heart be proud? It was God who delivered them. It was God who prospered him. It was God who was with him in everything. At what point did he start thinking it was him? And this emissary came, and if you read about it in, in, in the, the king's account, he takes him in and he shows him everything. You want to see my treasuries? Come and look at all that I have. You want to see this? And he shows him everything that he's got. And he's boasting and proud of all that is in his hand. And really, when that guy comes to inquire about the sign, here's all he should be saying. He did it. God did it. I pled with him. I cried out to him. I was on my deathbed. I cried out to God. And God said, I'm going to give you 15 more years. I said, well, I'm about to die. How can I believe that? Give me a sign. And he gave, gave me the sign. He gave me the choice. Make the day go shorter or make the day go longer. I chose the harder one and God still did it. This all happened because of God. All that you see around you, and I'm not showing you everything, is from God. That's my dream about what he would have done correctly. But what he actually did is he didn't point to God. He didn't give the glory to God. He showed all of his abundance, all of his prosperity, all that God had done for him. And given him, he got caught up in it. He got caught up in those blessings and did not give God the glory that's due to him. And so he became proud. Um, it's, a, it, it's a very tragic circumstance. But I, I want us to know this. Um, in First Kings, when the temple was dedicated... This is what uh, Solomon had said when he prayed in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 38 and following. Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man, all your people of Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, stretching out his hands towards this house, the temple, hear in heaven from your dwelling place and forgive the act and render to each according, uh, render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. Listen to what it says in verse 39. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Now back with me to chapter 32 and verse 31. Now in the matter of the envoy, the diplomat that came from Babylon, the princes of Babylon who had been sent to inquire about the sign that was done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him to know what was in his heart so did God before the test not know it's a trick question right of course God knew what was in his heart because God knows the hearts of all the children of mankind I just read that verse the same thing it says of Jesus Jesus in John chapter 2 verse 24 and 25 would not entrust himself to a certain group of people because he needs no men no one to testify about men because he knows what's in man and so the test 
was not so that more so much just that God would know, but that Hezekiah might know where his heart really is. Left him to himself. Wait, even the most faithful king left to himself will fail, will fall. Take heed indeed to the one who thinks he stands, lest he fall. Because we come to recognize this, I don't want to be left to myself. (laughs) I don't ever want to be left to myself. I want God to be working in my heart, to be inclining. I don't want to harden my heart. I don't want to grieve and resist the Holy Spirit. I want to continue in a state of faithfulness and yieldedness in as his heart was lifted up in pride. God just took his hand off for a second and said, now let's see what you do. Faithfulness did not stand faithfulness was not there so if I'm looking forward and I'm hoping to be faithful what do I want to say God leave me not to myself and I'm so thankful that he when Jesus left he said I will not leave you alone but I will send my spirit to be with you he he is with you but he will be in you and so now in that spiritual sense with the Holy Spirit the spirit of Christ who is in us Christ can say I will never leave you or forsake you But we lean not on our own understanding. We face nothing under a sense of our own strength. We never again want the idea of being left to ourselves. Why would I want to be left to myself? I'm his. And he's mine. And that's it. Always his. And always mine. No more anything else. Because the best man trying his level best going to fail and even you will continually stumble and fail along the way and I think God is even merciful in that in our own shortcomings and stumblings so that we don't get lifted up in our own hearts and so that when we stumble we end up on our knees (laughs) and from that position like what happens here when God told him what he had done in pride. He humbled himself and all of the people with him. And then God blessed him and recovered him. So the faithful still fail foolishly. And the last thought is this. The faithful will stand forgiven. Why? Because those that God is really at work in, when, when convicted, when confronted, they're not going to continue. The grace of God is too powerful. The grace of God that, that saves us doesn't, hasn't, hasn't simply saved us from the future judgment. It saved us from the present dominion and power of sin in our lives. It saved us and transformed us and made us a people who are obedient from the heart to the things that God has given to us. And so he, he has not only set us free from the judgment, he set us free from the, the, the lifestyles, the sinful things that were inherited from our forefathers. And so when we understand that, uh, when we are those people who are gripped by grace, will we still fail even though he has not forsaken us even though he has not left us we will still make mistakes but back again to first john in that same section of scripture if we confess our sin he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Ah. And, and those who are the children of God, who are in fellowship with God, who are children of the light, what do they do? When their sin is brought to them, they confess their sin. They humble themselves before the mighty hand of God. They look to him in faith and hope and are humbled. That's why it says um, in James chapter 4, verse 8 and following, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Recognize the deficiency and the mistakes and the failures that you do. Your laughter will be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I want to just note this as well, that, that section there where it said, um, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It's hard not to, to look at that and then, then take a look at this king this king that the scriptures regularly refer to as being refer, uh, uh, regarded as faithful. But his faithfulness still failed. But we have a God whose faithfulness never fails. I love what it says in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. This is a trustworthy saying. For if I have died with him, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. But listen, if we are faithless, we who are his by grace, even if at times we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So we don't walk away from this just saying, oh, how faithful is Hezekiah. The one who was, the name means strengthened by God. But in the moment he's not strengthened by God, what happened? Failed. His faithfulness fell short. But when we look to the God who made him strong, his faithfulness never fails, endures forever. Even the most faithful king is not ever even close to the faithfulness of of the king of kings who is over all so in closing just remind you of those thoughts that we considered today the faithful still face the fire the faithful still work wisely the faithful still totally trust the faithless stubbornly deny the god they don't know the faithful still foolishly fail but the faithful will stand forgiven in the faithful one who was sent on our behalf Jesus Christ let's pray Lord God oh there is none like you and we are just so thankful for your words and it just when we contemplate this and recognize whatever condition a person might find themselves in you alone are God and you alone are able to save and deliver anyone and bring them to life in Christ and for those of us who are your children who have found ourselves um, stumbling struggling sinning 
Lord, we thank you that we understand also that your grace is sufficient, not only to have done a work in the past, but is it even at work within us now to grant us strength to deliver. Lord, may our cry really be that the cry of the name Hezekiah, God is my strength. Lord, may we not look to ourselves with pride, but humbly and constantly by grace, look to and live in dependence and total trust upon you. Whatever fire may come, whatever trials may arise, whatever struggles may, may approach us, God, you are glorious, you are faithful, you are sufficient, and you're our God. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.